What a good day for us to be here, for us to be connecting, for, for us to be present in each other's presence. That's what I'm feeling. Oh my goodness, I've never been more positive about being negative in my life. <laughs> you know, I'm a happy negative man today, and I wasn't able to be with you last week because I was too positive. So I'm so thankful that God met me and turned that thing around so that I could be here today and be experiencing this together. And I'm praying for everybody. Amen. Boy, thank you, God. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for your presence with us in it. And please feel, let God bring you into his presence in his place. What a gift and what a blessing. But thank you for letting us join you in your presence, in your place today, those of you that are with us online. Uh, God's going to do something for somebody today. And I'm, I'm so very thankful that I was able to join us. You know, last week we had like our tech wizards just turn that thing around and let me drop in while you guys were gathering. And I just want to say, are not we blessed to have Luis Santa Marina on our team? What a blessing. And then all of the students who were part of the student takeover weekend who help us remember that we want to see the faith reproduce from generation to generation. It's how we got here, and we're so grateful. We love you all, and we want you to feel our embrace and feel our encouragement. So to everybody who's coming to a year end of a school, we're asking God to meet you there, bless you there, and take you to the next level. God bless you in your service to him and your blessing to us. Now, According to the uh, National Center for Biotechnology Information and the National Library of Medicine, as governmental restrictions on elective medical care were gradually lifted during COVID, did you know this? There has been a global surge in cosmetic surgery. <laughs> Is that surprising? Is that interesting? The article also went on to say this, quote, little is understood about the psychology of prospective patients during COVID-19, close quote. I guess what that means is they don't know why it happened. Why was there a surge in cosmetic surgery during this time? And so then I, uh, I saw another article from the Los Angeles Times where some cosmetic surgeons from Beverly Hills gave their perspective. Here's what they said. Since people had more time on their hands, and had been working from home, they didn't have to be as concerned about taking time away from work. And they could recover at home away from people, a little more discreet about it. Also, wearing a mask gives those who have their nose and their face and their lips done an entire, an entire recovery period behind a mask. <laughs> and then I saw another article do the drop-down research here. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons, the world's largest plastic surgery organization, agrees that Zoom calls may have also contributed to the boom. People were seeing themselves on these calls <laughs> and not liking what they saw. You know, one person said, I really didn't notice how my neck bothered me until I saw it in the camera. 
And so they said, you know, people couldn't travel, so they couldn't spend money on other things, so they spent it. One industry that benefited from the crisis was plastic surgery. Isn't that interesting? And why would I be telling you that story? To make this point, people were ready for a change, and they found someone willing to help them. Ready for a change and found someone willing to help them. Today, in our journey to freedom, we've been exploring what is the biblical foundation for the 12-step recovery program that has so populated the nation. And uh, today, our step in the journey to freedom deals with being ready to be changed. And here's what we're going to see. This is what we say. Jesus is ready when I am. So, I'm ready to be changed. Would you say that with me? Jesus is ready when I am, so I'm ready to be changed. But more than cosmetically. The changes that God works in us are always more than skin deep. And so step six in 12-step program says this. We were entirely ready to have God remove all defects of character. Now, I got to tell you, this is the big league. In the steps here. This is like, whoa, this one is going uh, uh, deep. And so you can see why step four and five are so important the moral inventory stage and then the personal accountability stage because you cannot get to step six without taking step four and five. First, we inventory our character. This kind of fearless moral inventory is what we talked about of all of our character defects. Ouch. And that, but what that means is we admit them, we list them, and then we label them, and then guess what? Then we take responsibility for them. we got to own them. That's step five, by telling somebody else in a courageous act of accountability. You say out loud to somebody else, what's on your list. And that's what Lewis and I talked about last week. It was so profoundly life-changing for him. And now in step six, we're going to have our defects removed, right? Wrong. No, that's not what this step is about. This step is about being ready. Being ready. Did you see that there? I mean, it's a strange fact of human nature that seeing does not mean believing. Am I right? Sometimes seeing simply means more denial. Like the cartoon I saw of a man, he's in an eye clinic, an eye doctor's office, and I mean, his, his hair is all frazzled, and his eyes are wild and bulging, and his legs just trembling. It's like something's going on here. And the caption has him saying, Doctor, I'd like to see things a little less clearly, please. In this world, we can relate to that. Or like the guy who told his physician, Doc, just tell me in plain English, you know. I mean, I recently got a physical done. I got a new general practice doc that we're getting acquainted, and I thought about this story. The doctor, the the guy said, now, Doc, just tell me in plain English, what's my problem? You know, none of that medical gobbledygook. Just, you know, get right to it. He said, okay, in plain English, you're lazy. (laughs) He said, okay, now give me the medical terms for that so I can tell my wife. (laughs) Sometimes... Seeing means disbelieving. We don't, we don't 
want to see it. And it's one of the reasons we don't change. Did you know that? You know, why does my life not change? Because this is part of the reason. Neurobiologists, neurologists tell us that we each one have to learn how to see. Did you know this? That just because you have eyes doesn't mean that you can see. And I'll give you a case in point. Um, Like Virgil from Oklahoma. Virgil, 50 years of age, he regained sight after 45 years of blindness. And what they found was that though everything was functioning physically, and he ought to be able to see perfectly well, he can't immediately see what they see because he doesn't have the experience of meaning to interpret the light. All the nerve endings are firing, all the impulses are fine, but he is mentally blind. He is, uh, his habits and his behaviors are still those of an unsighted life. Hmm. Virgil's story appeared in the New Yorker magazine a month after his surgery. And in that article, he said he felt more disabled than before. than when he was blind, that he had lost the confidence and the ease that he had had in movement that he possessed then, that the physical and emotional impact of the gift of sight, when you really start to see what is actually there, can be like shocking and explosive to the point that one of the body's reactions to overload or to overstimulation, you know what it is, it just shuts down. It blocks out this new visual world to return to the earlier tactile world. And so lots of patients behave blind. They refuse to see even after their sight has been restored. See, they thought they were ready to be changed. To have their defects of sight removed. But now they're stalled. They're in a motivational crisis. Did you know John's gospel talks about something similar that affects people like us spiritually? a similar condition, that when God starts opening our eyes (laughs) to see what's there, showing us things about ourselves that we're not accustomed to looking at and our need for a divine solution, even how ready he is to help us make the change and uh, to, to bring his light into a dark place, our need for divine solution, and that he stands ready with healing and uh and his touch, that human beings have this strange propensity to see, but refuse to see. We prefer to stay where we were, in the dark, where we're comfortable, where we know how to maneuver our way. And here's, and it's the first chapter of John's gospel. John chapter 1, he says, the true light that gives light to every man, every person was coming into the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. His own 
did not receive him. Why not? Why not? They saw, but they didn't see. Why not? John 3, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. You know that verse about God so loving the world that he gave his only son that, you know, whoever believes. These words I just read come three verses right after that powerhouse verse showing us why some people close the door on Jesus Christ. Why? Well, they see, but they're not ready to see. They don't see. They have eyes, but they will not see. I can relate to that. We have truth in our heads. We have a level of understanding. Okay, yeah, I've got, my, I've got some issues, but doesn't everybody? I have some defects of character, but oh my goodness, I don't know that mine are as bad as, you know, I, I see, but I don't really see. We, we know that our defects of character are clear. Somebody else has seen them and said, man, well, I hope you can see them. But we're not ready. Not ready to be changed, not to let go of the problem. Why not? Because here's what Scripture says. We choose the dark. We like it better. Maybe we like the feeling of superiority that pride brings into our psyche. You know, the sense that we're smarter than or that we're richer than or that we're stronger than or that we're thinner than or that we're something more than somebody else. And so in the ranking system, it's like, man, I, I like being there. Or maybe we've built an identity around some of these things, these defects. They call them defects, but you know, I've had them a long time. You've had them a long time. You might even refer to them as part of who you are. Hey, that's just the way I am. They're part of us now. Uh, some, of us, some of us like the adrenaline rush that rage brings into our system. And so we keep that button pretty close so that we can rage about stuff because it's how I am. Other people might like that excitement. They prefer the excitement of lust, even though they know it's artificial and that pornography is not real. But man, it's just like, for others, letting go of envy and greed, that, that sounds great, you know, pretty good until it starts cutting into our shopping habits, changing the way we eat and overeat. That Man, that sounds wonderful, but you know, I already got dinner plans. hey, maybe these aren't defects at all. Maybe these defects aren't so bad. You know, it occurs to me that <laughs> they may have kept you surviving through some pretty tough times over the years. So maybe they're not moral defects as much as they are coping mechanisms. That's right. They help, you co they help me cope with stuff. You see how denial works? You see how rationalizing works? And we start, listen, say, man, the, the dark is more comfortable than the light. Maybe we don't need to get rid of them. Maybe we just need to learn how to handle them better. It's like Larry Moore, the, uh, the snake handler I read about. He was founder of the British Columbia Association of Reptile Owners. It was a group that was organized to dispel the fear and misunderstanding of snakes. Tragically, Larry died a victim of a poisonous snake bite from an Egyptian cobra that he had been handling. 
or Derek Romero. He was squeezed to death by this 11-foot Burmese python that belonged to his brother. Relatives said that uh, they had just talked with Derek only 45 minutes before, and when they, were, when they asked about the snake, they told police that Sally, that's what they called the python, Sally, as they uh, called her, was playful and docile all the way through her eight years that they had had her in the family. But playful was not the way that Captain Malden said the snake was behaving when they found it wrapped around Derek. I'm just wondering, you know, you sharing room in your life with a snake and not maybe seeing it yet? <laughs> because, hey, I've always done that. I've always had this. This is just how I am. I mean, I can show people how to handle this one. I mean, this is how it works, isn't it? Are you spending time and space in your place with a snake because you just haven't come to the point where you're ready to let it go yet? That's what step six is about. Step six asks this. Have you faced darkness in your life to the point that you are ready for God to remove your defects of character? That's like saying, you know, has your defect cost you enough yet that you've kind of hit your limit and you're ready to finally get it out of here. Let it go. The toxic fangs of anger and selfishness, you know, have they damaged enough of your relational life yet? Or do you need to blow up another marriage? Or do you need to, you know, spiral your kids off into rebellion or resentment because it's just how you are? Or what about the copperhead poison of hubris? How many more ego strikes can your career take? Will your colleagues put up with? Will your customers come back to when that's what they experience? Because, hey, it's just the way you are. How many friends will continue to tolerate? They're close enough. They see you. They get you. They know you. But this is the question that step six is asking about. Have you spoken to anybody yet about your drinking? I mean, have you said it out loud about that thing, that addiction, you know, that thing? Man, God, would you just turn it around? But have you said it to anybody out loud anywhere? How about the python that is wreaking havoc in our culture about materialistic workaholism that would just squeeze the life out of you, every ounce of life out of your stressed-out soul, so that you don't have any energy left to give your family or your kids or your God. See, that's what we're asking about today. This is the deep end of the pool, isn't it? What about the smooth tongue of the cobra of deceit, of painting the pretty lie, the gossip that can diminish or slander another person's character? The green-eyed serpent of jealousy, the snake pit of sexual immorality. Man, is that a snake pit? Has your habit, has your hang-up, has your hurt, has your issue, your thing cost you enough yet that you hit your limit, that now, hey, you're saying, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, Bill, why all this talk about snakes? Because Numbers chapter 21, the people of God, the people of Israel, have an encounter with snakes. 
If you don't know the story, let me tell you. Moses was leading them across the desert into the promised land. God had a brand new tomorrow waiting for them that wasn't going to look like their yesterday. But on their way through, it says the people rebelled, and their short-sightedness led them to be proud and hateful toward God and then commit mutiny against Moses, even as God and Moses were trying to take them to a better place. And so then the next thing you know that happened, they started spreading lies about the leaders, about the quality of the experience, and like, lies like what? Like we're being, we're being starved to death. God brought us all the way out here in the wilderness, now he's just going to let us die of starvation, when actually what had happened in the story says that God provided manna every day, and then he brought some quail in so they could have some meat. You know, there was nourishment to keep body and soul together, but they were saying, God doesn't care about us, he's not taking care of us, we're going to starve out here, and then they said, and we're, we're dying of thirst. Where's the fresh water? And yet the story tells us that God had already put a rock that could just move with them and that that rock would gush with water that was fresh and alive and re refreshing and they could just drink from the water that came from the rock. And yet they were saying, <laughs> where's the God who cares about us? And so in that story, it says that as perhaps as a mirror to the poisonous lies that people were telling and believing. <sighs> Venomous snakes appeared among the people. And their bites were toxic and they were fatal. People were dying. Now my take on it is that it was a, an act of severe mercy on behalf of God. That it was a power object lesson that God brought to the classroom that day to say, are you paying attention yet? And that those snakes really were like agents of reflection and correction. That reflection was there so that the people in that experience would see themselves. It was an opportunity for self-awareness to do a moral inventory and to say, hey, maybe I'm part of the problem here. And then they would own their actions and admit their defects. And then not only to that point, but it would also be a reflection that led to correction so that they would see that God is on their side so that the people wouldn't just see their needs, but they would see that the doctor was on sight and turn from their deadly behaviors to the living God who loves them. That God would remove their defects if they were ready. The question was readiness, right? And finally, they'd had enough. Numbers chapter 21, verse 7, they come to Moses fully acknowledging their mistake. They've done, they got it wrong. They sinned against God. They sinned against him. They know why the snakes are there. They know that their behaviors are being reflected and now have an opportunity to be corrected in this. They know they've been wrong, and so they finally said this, Moses, please, would you pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us? We're ready. Remove the causes of our pain. And so Moses prayed, and the Lord told him, verse 8, make a snake. Make a snake and then put it up on a pole. And verse 9 says, he made a snake out of bronze. He put it up on a pole. And it says, so anyone who looks, though bitten, will live. 
So those who were truly ready for a change would look and live. Their future was bright. And you know what, friends? Jesus mentions this same story in John 3, right before the most famous verse that you know. Verse 16. This story. Look at it. I'll show you. Verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him might live without dying eternally. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why would Jesus compare himself to a snake on a pole? Because he gets us. He gets you. He gets me. He knows. He knows. He knows us. He knows how we see, but we don't really see. He knows how deeply we've been affected by everything around us and what we're listening to and what we're saying. And he, he knows. He gets us. But he knows that we don't always get what's going on. And so he has to show up to this level. He knows that we're snake bit. He knows that the poison is already taking its toll. And so he knows that he is the antidote for every one of those bites. For every single mistake, for every human flaw, for every character defect, for every sin that has ever been unleashed on another human being or on you, that Jesus knows he gets us. And he knows that he is the healer and the healing. He is the antidote. He is the doctor and the medicine, and he gets us, and he comes for us. Here's what the New Testament says. God sent his son in the form of sinful flesh. That means snake, the snakiness <laughs> is, is right there. And yet without sin, the medicine is whole. The healing is present. Chapter 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Our healer and our medicator took all of the toxins and all of the poisons and all of the misbehaviors and attitudes of sin into himself, took it all the way in, and then look at this. Oh, my goodness, so that in him we might become fully healed. The righteousness of God. He comes to set things right for us on the inside. Jesus gets us. That's what Paul said. Here's what Peter says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's the pole. It's lifted up. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. But then it's so great because he offers us more than simply healing. He offers us deliverance. In Jesus' own words, when he was teaching his disciples, he said this, I give you authority to trample on what? Come on! Snakes? Are you kidding me? Oh, those deadly things that people like to make as pets and, and we get deceived by in a garden and I got snakes in my garden and Jesus said, yeah, heads up. I'm giving you power to overcome snakes. 
and all the power of the enemy. Jesus is talking about freedom. Jesus is talking about step six, being entirely ready to have God remove our defects. And Jesus is ready when you are. So are you ready? Jesus is ready when I am. So I want to live ready. <laughs> I'm ready to be changed. So whenever some new snake shows up, you know, I got the medicine right here. I got the doctor with me. I'm going to deal with it the way he promised. And, I'm gonna, and if you learn to live there in readiness, then you learn to live a changed life. We recently licensed Mario Rojo, retired police officer, to the ministry that God has called him to Christ, to cops, to community. And his wife, Sherry, prayed him through. We heard some of that story at the time. And, um, and so as we captured that story, she's sitting there listening with him, to him, to some of his story, because Mario's got a story about how he became ready and then was changed. I always had this yearning to be a police officer. And um, finally my dream came through and uh, a year after we had been married, uh, I envisioned um, helping people. I envisioned serving the community, making a difference in the community. And as the years went on, I started to see the, the true uh, how would you put it, the, the, the true nature of police work. You become self-righteous in the things that you do. And you become part of the culture that says to you, you start saying to yourself, well, I'm not as bad as the people I police. Out there thinking that you're better than people and you're no better, in all honesty. Um, I met the girl of my dreams, we got married. And there was times there where that wasn't enough. We never disliked each other. We've seen couples that dislike each other. <laughs> and that's, they're not pleasant to be around. Um, but uh, we never disliked each other. We were always friends. And uh, that's what my lifestyle was trying to destroy. So I just realized that as I look back at the years. There was a point in time where my wife had said, we're done, we're never gonna go back. But instead of taking me to divorce court, where we should have ended up, she said, I had to start going to church. And I said, what the heck, I'll start going to church. It's only an hour a week. If it makes things better, why not? And she would tell me on occasion what a hypocrite I was, which I was. <laughs> and uh, then came 2011, May of 2011, was the first time that the man got taken down by the man. And he got my attention. And uh, he uh, took me down and in our bathroom and I saw the Lord for the first time. I saw the light. 
and I was going to the light, and I felt a peace that I had never felt before. And then I heard my wife on the phone with 911 saying, he's coming back, he's coming back. And I did come back because he wasn't done with me. But uh, that didn't change me. It just got my attention. And like I tell Bill all the time, you know, police officers are hard not to crack because we never surrender. That's not our DNA. And uh, it took a good year later on a Sunday and I woke up and she wasn't here. She had gone to church without me. And I went very angry to the church and I sat where I'd never sat before. And I could remember Bill was talking about Galatians 5, the fruits of the spirit and the fruits of the flesh. And as he went through the fruits of the flesh, he looked at me. That's what it felt like. And I was sitting to his right, and, and, and I could see Bill's blue eyes, just like my wife's beautiful blue eyes, staring right at me, saying all the fruits of the flesh. And I said, my God, that's me. I am a hypocrite. And uh, when he called for people, to accept Christ, that was the day that I surrendered. And I didn't surrender like most people. I couldn't surrender with one hand. I had to surrender with both my hands because that's how I make people surrender to me. I wasn't the man anymore. I gave it up to the man and that's the first time I felt the whole weight of the world come off my shoulders. And then uh, about a month or so later, we were discussing what would have been our last vacation as a family together, right there in that kitchen. And she turned and said to me, why are you still here? And I just said four words. I said, because I love you. And that was it. We never discussed not being with each other anymore. We never had to try anymore. He took, took over, took over our lives. That didn't change me. It just got my attention. And then there was this day in church where God spoke, and I knew it was me. And I had to say, I'm ready. Are you ready to be changed? Or has God even got your attention yet? Recently, Lisa and I returned from a tour to Greece with a group of Christ journeyers that were tracking the missionary adventures of Paul and John. And I'm so inspired from that. We're going to put a series together about it late in the summer. 
And so I'm, we're looking forward to bringing you all into that. But the reason I'm telling you that story is because our guide was a highly seasoned veteran of 40 years of leading countless tours into these Bible land experiences where Paul taught, where John was. And yet she leans across the bus to me um, and says, I need to speak tonight at our gathering because something is happening to me. Something's, I'm feeling something. And that night what she told our group was in the 40 years that she has been leading these tours into the ruins of missions and the story of Christianity, she said, this is the first time that I have felt like I wanted to listen to the preaching, that I wanted to be a part of what the group was saying because every night we would gather together and say, what did you hear today? What did you learn today? Where are we, you know, in the journey? And she said, so you all are showing up, so I just want to show up and tell you that I'm feeling something. She was emotional. So I'm being moved, being lifted. She said, I don't know if I'll feel the same way tomorrow when I look at my bills, but something's happening. And I said, Nani, the Bible talks about moments like this of windows of opportunity that the wind of the Spirit would visit you. And it usually comes with an announcement like this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I want to say the same thing to you. I'm not ready to be changed, okay, but are you willing to become ready? Or will God need to get your attention and show you how deadly the snakes are before you look to the one that can find you and free you? Because this place is all about freedom. And God, before he can set us free, he has to bring us to a point of understanding our need. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the profound way that you have come to us in Jesus Christ and how you are the remedy that you get us. You get us in our pain. You get us in our mistakes. You get us in our flaws. And you get how we don't get it so, so many times. And you're so patient and kind. And how we pray today that you would open somebody's eyes a little wider. Is it you? Is it you? Would you say, Lord, open my eyes a little wider? If you're trying to get through to me, would you open my ears a little wider? Say, Lord, if, if I'm the one that you're wanting to turn around, then would you turn this thing around today? If you're speaking to me, God, I don't want to harden my heart. I, I want to step into freedom so that the people I love can feel it and not suffer from my blindness. If that's you, brother, then lean in right now. If it's you, sister, lean in to God right now. I'm listening, Lord. I'm leaning closer. Perhaps for you today, you know that this is the day that you are supposed to start your spiritual journey with Jesus. And the way to do it is with a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. I'm looking to you on the cross as my forgiver and my healer. Now lead me that I can follow you into freedom. Thank you for hearing my prayer. 
as I make it in your name. Now, our heads are still bowed just for a moment. But if you prayed that prayer with me to begin a walk with Jesus and would let me ask him to bless you in your first steps, would you simply raise your hand or, Mario, your hands uh, uh, to say, Lord, I'm hearing you and I'm responding to you. And just keep your hands lifted just for a second. Join uh, those that are joining us online. Just join the chat and say, I'm praying right now. Would you please allow the Spirit to meet with you. God bless you. I see you in the, the middle toward the back and on the left and the right side. God bless you. And then over to the far left wall. God bless you, sir. In the back all the way to the right, I'm seeing a hand lifted. If I don't see you, forgive me. But Lord, for every hand that is lifted saying my heart is open and I'm ready for a change, would you cause each one to feel your spirit's presence? and to bring peace that passes human understanding just like you promised. In your name I pray, amen.